2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Look at verses um, 10 through 17. Uh, We are in a very good place this morning in God's word. Um, We are right now in the middle of this campaign. Uh, We've just passed the middle point and we're moving toward, you know, moving into a building. And one of the things that we kept saying to you over and over and over again is uh, let's, let's not make this type of transition change who we are. And we've, we've said like, that's a goal. We don't want this to change who we are. Uh, Interestingly enough, in the passage this morning that we have right in front of us is really a a staple passage for us as a church. And because what it does is it clears up for us, what is it that really matters? What is it that if we were uh, a persecuted church, what is it that really matters? What is it that is really essential? Um, Because I'll be honest with you. When we think about what is essential to a church, we often don't think about what the Bible says really matters. Uh, Because most of us here, we have an Americanized view of the church. Because the only way that we've seen church is it being displayed here in our own culture. Um, And so the formula that we often choose for what a healthy church is or what is a thriving church, it is often based on the Americanized formula for what a successful church looks like. So for instance, when... Maybe some of us, when we've looked for churches, we often look for it based on the pragmatism of that church. So we say, how engaging is the pastor? How engaging is the music? Is, do they play my favorite songs or not? How, how is the kids program, the youth program? How big is the climbing wall and the youth room? You know, all of these things. Like we want to we wanna build that. That's the idea of a successful church. Maybe it's just the look or the aesthetic. I mean, I've even gotten a call. Uh, a few years back, uh, someone that was calling, inquiring about our church, and they said, uh, what do you wear? And I'm like, oh, our people normally wear this, and, and they said, no, 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 what do you wear? Uh, because I don't know if I can go to a pa- church where the pastor doesn't wear jeans, and I'm going, and that's a creepy thing to ask anyway, when you call, like, what are you wearing? Like, it's just, you know, um, and so, but I, I, will, I remember, like, just seeing, and I've seen that show up. Maybe it's the facility that we say, okay, well, once the church has a facility then, or, you know, comfortable chairs or coffee or the parking lot, we, we got go on and on and on. And we say, okay, this was the gauge. That's, I'll go to a church that has these types of things. And let me just say to you, but perhaps that's, we're a little bit skewed by what we see in American culture of what a successful church is. Now, some of these things I get, we want to be relevant. We want to reach our context, but if we are A persecuted church, what is it that really matters in the end? That's the question that I want us to ask. And I don't mean persecuted like we were mad at Starbucks for not saying Merry Christmas, okay? That's not real persecution, by the way. And uh, let me just say, like, don't ask Starbucks to be a missionary. That's your job um, if you're a believer. Um, And so here, let's think about real persecution, though. Like if Integrity Church were really persecuted, like the way that we see in the New Testament, perhaps the way that we see throughout the world of people who are really genuinely suffering and for their lives for the sake of the gospel. You look at believers in North Korea and Somalia and Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, Sudan and Iran. They, they live completely different. They live different worlds than we do. Uh, when they walk out of their gathering in secret, uh, their lives could be easily threatened. They've seen their Friends who love Jesus lose their life for the sake of the gospel. And here we walk out and we're fine. You know, we're mad if the AC doesn't work right or something like that. That's the level of persecution that we 
think that we faced. And so let us not take for granted what we've been given because um, the way that we understand Christianity isn't the way that it's been displayed throughout church history or even now throughout the rest of the world. So when we think about persecution, I want us to think about for a moment, what would it mean to lose all of the amenities that we have? What would it mean to lose Sunday mornings and know that we can't gather on Sunday? What would it mean to lose the space that we meet in? What would it mean to not um, have worship songs that we can sing loudly? We have to sing them in secret because our lives would be threatened. What would it mean that our lives would literally be threatened, uh, that we might lose our children for the sake of the gospel? And would we be committed to This gathering, we would be committed to each other coming together for the sake of the gospel. And if we were, what would we actually gather for? And this is what Paul is going to do. He's going to capture why we gather, what we come together for, what we build our lives around and what in the end, what really matters. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, here you have Paul. He's reminding Timothy in the very beginning of how sinful people are, that sinful people are pervasive, that sinful people and people who oppose the truth are going to continue. And then he tells Timothy, but not to worry, though, because it should not slow him down for doing all the things that God has called him to. Uh, in fact, he's going to tell Timothy now in, the very, in, in verses 10 through 17, then what should remain? Okay, if we're persecuted, sinful people everywhere, there's people who are going to oppose the truth, what is it that we need to focus all of our attention on. And this is where he starts in verse 10. He says this to young Timothy, verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Follow along with me. It says, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Then he says, My persecution, my suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. That's good news, right? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what's the word? Persecuted. So Paul starts off, he says, every believer, if they stand and they they strive for a godly life, they will be persecuted. And then he tells Timothy to do something that he's been telling him to do throughout the book of 2 Timothy, to follow his example. Follow my example in the way I live my life, but also follow me as I am suffering for the gospel. You even see it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says to young Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 3, he says, share in suffering uh, as a good soldier. And here at the end of chapter 3, he is affirming again for Timothy that if he continues to proclaim the gospel, his life is not going to get any easier. In fact, it's going to get more and more difficult. And so he uses three examples to kind of capture this idea. He talks about his own suffering at a place called Antioch. What happened at Antioch? Well, in Acts chapter 13, it's the very end of verse 50, Paul was kicked out of Antioch for preaching the gospel. 
Then he talks about this place, Iconium. What happens at Iconium? Well, Paul was almost executed by stoning in Acts chapter 14, verse 5. And then if you even dip down in verse 19 of, of Acts chapter 14, that's where he talks about Lystra. What happened at Lystra? Paul actually was stoned and he was left for dead. And so Paul was a man who dealt with persecution. He was a man who was left for dead multiple times, left stranded multiple times. And he's here reminding Timothy of these stories so he would realize this is what is at stake if you proclaim the gospel. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he doesn't say might be persecuted, he says will be persecuted. Now, I don't want to minimize that there are opportunities for us in America to be persecuted. Although it's not like those that we would see in the top 100 most persecuted places in the world of the Sudan and we see Iran and all these places that we should, as believers, should be praying for. But we do often in America, we do face some form of persecution. I don't know what that looks like for you, but perhaps... As we live in this culture that's continually at war against the truth, and unless there's a profound gospel movement, it will continue as a trajectory of a resistance against the truth, a resistance toward of the truth. And what does this mean? Well, it means that the truth of the gospel will be less and less tolerated in our country. And so I don't know what persecution looks like, For you right now, but perhaps some of you are being challenged by your own family because of your love for the gospel. Perhaps some of you are being looked down upon or isolated because you've chosen to make scripture the authority of your life rather than the trends of our society. I see it all the time. I'll marry couples um, who want to get married and they want to make the gospel the center of their marriage and they maybe come out of families that don't believe. And often the counseling, it's bizarre, like the father will often tell the daughter, why don't you just live with the guy before you get married, just so you can get used to being married, right? Just so you, you, don't, you, don't, you know what the sex will be like before, and, and you know, if he's not good, you know, like it's just like this weird, and that's the advice fathers often give the daughters, and there's this persecution that might happen of, you know, you, you know you'll save money if you just live together, and that's like the, the mentality that we have. But maybe the persecution is just, Thinking this idea is archaic and foreign because we're trying to trust scripture. Maybe some of you, you have a pressure. Maybe some of you college students or young professionals that you have a a, a, a pressure from your own family or maybe friends that are pressuring you to make more money when you know that gospel calls you maybe to position your life around the gospel even when it's just uncomfortable. And maybe, maybe you move somewhere where you won't make as much money so that you can leverage whatever you're doing for the cause of Christ. And maybe you were persecuted from that. Maybe, you're, you're, um, maybe you are looked down upon because of that. I have a friend of mine, for instance, who he wants to push his family to adopt. And he said, man, I just want to be about adopting uh, a child. And so his own family has now pulled away from him because the child that he decided to adopt was of another race. And his own father won't even talk to him anymore. And that's the persecution that we might face for the sake of the gospel. Maybe the persecution that you face is with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker or a classmate or a doormate. 
But I promise you that if you are positioning your life around the gospel, you will face some level of persecution. And we shouldn't be surprised by that if it happens. In fact, Jesus says it to his disciples that this would happen, that the gospel would create some level of division. In Matthew chapter 10, for instance, in verse 34, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more is more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so listen. If you are a believer in Christ and you're positioning your life around the gospel, there will be division that happens and there will be persecution that follows. And that is what Jesus is guaranteeing that will happen. Now, what I don't want us to do here is mistake persecution with ignorance, all right? Because I think sometimes that there's persecution that happens because you genuinely love Jesus. But I also think that there are Christians who are persecuted because they're just not socially aware. Right? They got it. Um, And so I get frustrated when proclaiming Christians have a posture of being condescending or patronizing to a lost and dying world, whether it be on a political stance or maybe they're the morality police or whatever it is. And they get mad because they say, no one likes me, so I'm being persecuted for Jesus. And I'm like, no, no one likes you because you're kind of a jerk. That's really what it is, all right? Don't blame Jesus for that. That's, that's you not taking social cues well, okay? So don't say I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus card when you're just annoying. Just don't be annoying, okay? So let's make sure when we're being persecuted, we're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And perhaps if you've never been persecuted in your life for the sake of the gospel, perhaps you're not living a life that is positioned around the gospel that would even threaten or even be uh, a difficult for uh, a lost and dying world where light uh, interrupts darkness. And so... Paul, though, is saying that we will be uh, truly uh, persecuted if we position our lives around the gospel. There's no escaping that. In fact, he guarantees it in verse 11, uh, verse 13, rather. Verse 13, he says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's saying it does, it's not going to get any better. But the good news is verse 11. In verse 11, he says, my persecutions and my suffering that happened, and he names these places, and he goes, which, I pers- uh, which persecutions I endured, yet with all of them, the Lord rescued me. So he says, the Lord rescued me, and I'm, I'm endured. How was he able 
to endure. Well, that's what we're going to see next in the next verses. And what Paul is going to say next to Timothy is what I think captures the idea of what really matters. What really matters when we think about gathering together and being the church. And so if this is what really matters to young Timothy re- preaching the gospel in Ephesus, it should matter to us at Integrity Church in 2015 when we know that persecution is likely ahead of us. So he's going to tell us now, how are we going to endure? What really matters? Verse 14, he says, but as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. Now, now who is Timothy talking, Paul talking to Timothy about? He's saying to Timothy, I know that you've been discipled well. Paul would have, uh, Timothy would have recounted what Paul says in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, where he recognized Timothy's faith, that was his faith came from his grandmother, um, his grandmother Lois, and his mother Eunice. And of course, Paul would have put himself in that category as someone that has been influential in young Timothy's life. And so he's saying to Timothy, you have owned what has been given to you, and that you have believed it yourself, and that you have learn this wonderful gospel message from other people rather and so he's saying this is this life on life discipleship that he sees on display and so for us as a church if we want to get down to the heart of what really matters if we're a persecuted church what is it that remains he's it's basically exactly what he sees in timothy you've learned it from others we got to be a church that has this culture where we learn from others. We have each other to rely on. We have each other to disciple. We have each other to care and to challenge and to encourage and to hold accountable. We need these things. And for us to be a healthy church, uh, we must have this culture of discipleship that Paul has seen in Timothy. And so here's what I'm trying to say. If you just come to church on the Sunday mornings and you're just, that's what you're trying to get out of this body, that me just hearing my preaching is not going to sustain you long term. I'm not that good, all right? But even, I, no one could be that good. To sustain you. This is why you need gospel-centered preaching, but it has to be married with gospel-centered community of other believers around you that can help you grow in your love for Christ. And so Paul here is not just advocating just orthodoxy. He's, he's advocating orthopraxy, what it means to practice what you know and see it on display. And so here at Integrity, we want to be a church where the gospel is seen on display, where you can come together and gather in small groups that we have throughout the week. You can come together and you can see imperfect marriages who are striving to be holy. You can see sin confessed. You can see older men discipling younger men, older women discipling younger women. It's an imperfect thing, but it's it's a striving. It's seeing God's word on display, seeing pictures of God's word at work. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's a necessary thing if we're going to be a healthy church. So if we're a persecuted church, this is what remains. We have to be a church set. 
yes, we believe in the wonderful truths of Scripture, but we also have to be a church also that, see, that displays that on a regular basis with life-on-life life discipleship. And so here is what we want to be as a church. And he's going to tell us why this is so important in verse 15. But as for you, um, that's 14, 15, um, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul now is going to say, He's talking about these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. What are those things? Now, I want you to remember Timothy here. He was raised by a Jewish mother with a father who was not a believer. He was not a Jew. He was never later converted uh, when, after the gospel came through in the New Covenant era. He's never converted. So what is it that Paul is referring to when he talks about Timothy? The sacred writings were the Old Testament. Everything before Christ came. And what I love what Paul does here is in his description of the Old Testament, in one verse, he tells us why the Old Testament exists. The Old Testament exists to point us to Christ. To be a picture of what Christ would be a fulfillment of. And so, ironically, Paul here is merely echoing the words of Jesus in Luke 24. In Luke 24, it's a very interesting place. Um, Jesus has lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the grave. And now, after his resurrection, people are still doubting. How can this be so? How can all this be that Jesus Christ went from life to death? How is this so? And Jesus, he looks at the unbelief of the people in uh, Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. And this is what he says. He says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, this is what he says next in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning, what's the word? Himself. So I don't know if you pick up on what Luke records here. He says, Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it's all about him. All of everything that happened in the Old Testament was about Christ. The law was to show Israel, how sinful they were, therefore needing uh, redemption, and then that redemption would be Christ. The, even Israel in and of themselves are a picture of what's to come in Christ. They existed so that uh, through a people that Jesus Christ would be born, and he would be the hero of the story, and he would be the savior of the world. And so Paul was telling this to a young preacher of what he knows about the Old Testament was to prepare him to understand Christ more. And so this is why here at Integrity, we want to preach the whole of Scripture so that you would see and you would cherish Christ more, so that your affections might be stirred in him. Now, the problem with evangelical culture often is when we handle the Old Testament, we don't recognize 
that it's just to show us how beautiful Christ is. And so what you end up happening is you, you hear Old Testament messages and it's always like, Noah's a good leader. Be a good leader like Noah, right? Look at Samson's strength. Be strong. Look at David. No, don't look at David. Not the whole thing, but look at the other parts, right? Okay, well, he fights this giant. And some of you have giants in your life. You got the giant of debt in your life. And what you need is the stone of stewardship to throw at the giant of debt in your life. And it like, it preaches, right? And there's an analogy of each stone and what they represent. We don't know what it represents, okay? He only needed one. He got three. I don't know why. We don't know why. We're not going to make an analogy out of it or a bracelet, okay? But that's what you end up, that's what ends up happening. We end up doing this with the Bible. Now, why does that story exist? It exists to show you the faithfulness of God by taking someone who is completely uncommon that should never have been able to defeat this giant and to show you the faithfulness of God so that there would be a people that would show up throughout history so that Christ would be born. The hero of the story is not David, it's God, it's Jesus. He's the hero of every story. And it's funny to me, you read the rest of the story of all these heroes in the Bible, they're a mess. Be like Noah, I don't know about that. Read the after what happens to the ark. He gets like Myrtle Beach drunk. That's what happens at the ark. You don't, don't be like Noah, okay? You be like Jesus. That's the example that we have. He's the hero of every story. And so what Paul is capturing here, this is why we need the word of God. It points us to Christ. It stirs our affections for Christ more. And so if we are a persecuted church, what is it that remains? Well, as Paul clearly reminds Timothy, you had these gospel-centered relationships. So we need gospel-centered relationships. We also need this gospel-centered sacred word that we must cherish. And then he tells us why. In verses 16 through 17, he says, very popular verse of scripture. And this is a good one to memorize. All scripture is breathed out by God. Some of your translations say God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good work. Now, a more literal translation might be all scripture is breathed into by God. And this is helpful because it shows us that scripture comes from God. So when you speak, when I speak, my words are been breathed. And he's saying everything that we see in scripture is God breathed. They're inspired by him. This is why Peter says this in 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. They were God breathed. And you always wonder, like, how does this work? Right? Like, how is it that Paul is just writing an encouragement letter to Timothy and it's inspired by God? Was it as if he was writing 
in his jail cell a letter to Timothy, and all of a sudden, like this electric impulse took over, and he began to write and couldn't control it like it's some kind of Ouija board or something like that. It's not necessarily like that. I mean, I think it's when Robert Plant um, uh, wrote Stairway to Heaven. Um, And by the way, um, Stairway to Heaven is uh, by a band named uh, Led Zeppelin. Okay? You know who Led Zeppelin is? Good. All right. Led Zeppelin is basically, think about Drake and everything that Drake is not. Um, That's Led Zeppelin. And it's actually called music. Um, <clears throat> but when he said, when Robert Plant wrote Stairway to Heaven, um, he said that it was like someone had taken over his body and wrote it for him. Um, I do think that's LSD, by the way. But, um, <laughs> but that is not necessarily how, um, how the Bible was written. It's not how the Bible was written. It wasn't that. These writers are writing and all of a sudden this magical, mystical thing happened and all of a sudden they're writing God's word. No, God inspired these words to the work of the Holy Spirit in these men's life and every bit of it is his word. This is why the human authors, they all have um, a human side to them. You see Paul in his sarcasm. You see Luke in his precision when he writes to, uh, to describe the gospel in the early church. And you see their personality show up because there's a human side. But each and every word, especially the way that you describe the character of God and how we live in obedience to him, they're all inspired by him. And so when we obey, when you open these sacred writings, do we realize, do we recognize this is God's word? When you open up your app on your phone and you, that's the, your Bible app, do you recognize that is different than any other book that you can read? That it's God's word. I know some of you, you always want, you're looking for signs and wonders and you want to hear the audible voice of God. If you want to hear the audible voice of God, you need to read scripture out loud. Because it's God's word. It's God's word. It's how he communicates to us. And by the way, it's sufficient in every way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Everything that he wants you to know about him is here. Everything that he wants you to know about how to live your life in accordance to the gospel is right here. Everything you need is right here here in front of you. Do you realize that when you open your word, you realize it when you go home and you close it and you maybe not even read it again, it's on your shelf, it's beside your nightstand. Do you realize right there next to you is everything that God wants you to know about him and how you live your life? Now, we don't, we don't believe that. We don't live that way. But what if we did, what would it look like? And this is why Paul captures what his word actually does in verse 17. He says it's breathed out by God. And he said it is profitable for teaching. Some of your translations might say it's profitable for doctrine. Now, some of you maybe get freaked out by the word doctrine or theology. And sometimes there's this idea that it just can can be kind of annoying, honestly, of like, the person's like, who cares about theology? Let's just love God. You ever see that like personality? Who cares about theology? Let's just love God, right? 
Well, let's just unpack that for a second. Can we agree that what we love, we actually study? We study what we love. So let me give you an example. I love Jessica Tugwell. She's my wife. So I consider myself a Jessologist. Because I want to know everything there is to know about Jess. I have a son named Finn. I am a Finnologist. It's on my business card. I'm a Gideonologist. My, my youngest son, Gideon. I'm a Gideonologist because I want to know everything there is to know about Jess, about Finn, about Gideon. And I want to know them well. And so when we say we want, to, we want you to have good theology, it's not this heady, disconnected word. It's this intimate word because it says, I want you to know the God who created you and the Bible points you to that person. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for theology because it tells you who God is. It tells you everything you need to know about his character. And by the way, when you know his character, that will sustain you through any persecution that you face. That's what sustains you to the end. It's who he is. And then he says, it's profitable for reproof. Some of your translations say rebuke. And we don't like that word. Part of the reason why we don't like that word is because we don't like being rebuked. He says correction. Correction. And so here's what that means. This is the Ben Tugwell Bible Remix version. You're not as awesome as you think you are. And that's okay. The Bible calls out sin in our life. It corrects us. It, it also puts us on the right path to be more like Christ. So we read the, the, the scriptures to see often how our sinful we are so that we can see our need to live and be holy and be like him. He's, the Bible has all that. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for re, re, reproof and correction. It's also profitable for training in righteousness. You know what that really means? And this is why. This passage is so dear to our hearts as a church. It really means this, maturing and multiplying. Look at what verse 17 says again, or verse 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every good Work. What do you have? You have, we learn to love God and be like him from reading his word. And so that from that, we are equipped for every good work. We're equipped to share that love that we have for God with other people. And it, and it almost cannot be contained. That's the kind of love that we want to have for his word. That we love, we, we grow in his word and maturity and we love him more and we obey him better. And then from that, it leads to mission where we are equipped to do every good work. So this is what really matters. We get to the heart of everything. If everything here on Sunday morning is stripped away, what is it that remains for Integrity Church? What is it that should remain for every church? It should be. The proclamation of this wonderful book that points us 
to love Christ and then equips us for every good work to love others. And from that, real gospel community should happen. We build our lives around loving and serving others. So this is why at Integrity, we take books of the Bible and we preach through them as faithfully as we possibly can. Because we wholeheartedly believe what Paul says to Timothy is absolutely true and absolutely sufficient. This is why since 2009, we've preached through 11 or 14 books of the Bible. We have 52 left and then I'll retire. That's how that's work. But what we believe about this book is this, that from knowing the word, you will learn to love him more. And in turn, you will learn to love others more. And so here's our responsibility as a church this morning. We've got to be a church that opens the word of God and proclaims it as faithfully as God enables to do so. We've got to be a church that when you come, that you're taught the word of God with precision, with authority, with correction, with rebuke, with love and encouragement, so that when you leave, you'll be equipped to do every good work. And then from that, We've got to be a church that fosters a community that is built around the gospel where you can see God's word on display in the lives of the others that God is working in. That's really the heart of what matters. So that as a whole, that's our responsibility. But listen, as, even as individuals, we're not off the hook. We have responsibilities in this as well. Now, our responsibility is this as individuals. Do we desire the word of God that is being proclaimed? Do we desire it when we come? Do we come hungry to hear? When we hear the word of God, it's God's voice proclaiming his love for us, his truth to us, his character for us. Do we recognize that? And then when we then take that home into our lives, do we desire God's word in our life? We have the Bible sitting right next to us or on our phones or every other place. Do we desire that? And that is our responsibility as believers to desire that because Paul is telling Timothy, when you're persecuted, that is what really matters. And the other thing we have to desire is the type of community that is centered around the gospel where you're known, where you're cared for, where you're challenged and where you're loved. And so listen, do you desire to listen well to who he is? And do you desire this type of community that's built around the gospel? And so as a church this morning, we are responsible for those two things. And as individuals, we're responsible for those two things. What really matters? The faithfulness of his people And the faithfulness of proclaiming his word. It's our prayer that we would be that church. It's our prayer that we would have those people that desire those two things. God help us. Let's pray.